Well guys, hello, glad you guys are joining us online. My name's Aiden, I'm one of the pastors here, and whether you've been joining us for a long time or you're newer to joining us online, we're just glad that you're here. I'd encourage you guys to open to the book of Matthew chapter 16 on your phones and your Bibles, we'll be camping out there today. But as you turn there, I, uh, I am a big fan of history. Like, I love watching old documentaries about things, old grainy film. I just love watching that kind of stuff. But at the same time, I'm a big basketball fan. And so perhaps you've, you've seen this, but about a year ago, during lockdown and everybody was at home, ESPN released this documentary called The Last Dance. And The Last Dance was the story of the mid-late 90s Chicago Bulls basketball team and they, how they just ruled the world, right? Like, they were the pinnacle of, of basketball, the pinnacle of sports at the time. And the documentary is all about their last year before they knew that they were going to kind of get, you know, broken up as a team. And it also is about Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan kind of helped produce this documentary. I grew up in the early 90s and I had my, my Space Jam pajamas. Space Jam was Michael Jordan movie where he played basketball against aliens. And I would watch that movie, put on my Space Jam pajamas and face my dad in basketball. Clearly he was the aliens and I was Jordan. But as I watched this documentary, it became like it was on every Sunday night for a couple weeks uh, during a lockdown. And I was so pumped. It was like the highlight of my week was watching this historical basketball documentary all about Michael Jordan. And if you watch it or if you were fortunate enough to watch Michael Jordan play, the dude just floated. Like, he was an insane basketball player, right? Like, he was so good. And as you watch this documentary, it, a lot of it revolves around, like, his will to win. Like, that dude was a straight winner, right? Whether it was basketball, golf, gambling, any, anything. It just, the documentary showed how much this dude wanted to win. And, and there's interviews with all kinds of players and coaches and staff all through the documentary. And as I was watching this, I, I, was, I was admiring, like, Jordan's will to win. This dude was just hardcore. But in the midst of all these, you know, greatest of all time debates and 90s basketball stardom, what caught me was that it, during the documentary, you saw this dude who is now 57 years old. And he's sitting down for all these interviews, Michael Jordan, and he's, he's got a cigar in one hand, a whiskey in the other hand, and he's talking smack telling stories about all, all these old, old rivalries, all these old coaches, these old kind of people in the, in the, the team, even his own teammates. And he was, he was bringing up all these, this beef he had with people and his complaints and how he, he deserved that MVP and all these things. And, and what I realized is that Jordan, as hard as he went to be the best, that it came at a cost. Because now this guy, 25 years later, is sitting in front of a camera talking smack about all these things he went through. That being the greatest of all time comes at a cost. And the truth is, regardless of how we spend our lives, there's always a cost. If, if you look at a pie chart, if you want to make one part of that pie chart bigger, something else has to get smaller, right? That there is an inherent cost to all of our decisions, our time, our investments, our relationship, our beliefs, our values, who we follow with our lives. We, for the last couple weeks, have been looking at the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. It's the single thing that Jesus talks most about all through, through, his, through the stories of the gospel. The book of Matthew, it's the thing that he talks about the most, is the kingdom of God. And we've been walking through this and unpacking this, and, and for some of us, this idea of kingdom can be a little alien to us because we don't have kings nowadays, right? 
We don't have kings and kingdoms, and so sometimes the language can feel a little, a little disconnected in some ways, but it's so important to understanding the story of Jesus and the story of the Bible. I want to show you guys a picture that was helpful to me in maybe understanding the kingdom. You think about Genesis 1. God creates all things, and heaven and earth, kind of God's space and human space are together as one, right? Heaven and earth overlap. They overlap together, and, and, and man is called to rule alongside of God, right? And kind of this rule. But we see Genesis 3 that sin enters the picture and God's space and man's space are separate. Because of sin that we have been separated from God, right? And all through the the Old Testament, we see these small pictures of these spaces overlapping, right? Until we get to the story of Jesus in the New Testament. We see Jesus coming as a baby and we see that God's space and our space begin to overlap. And Jesus announces the kingdom in Matthew 4, uh, chapter 17. He says, the kingdom of God has come near. He's beginning to bring these spaces back together. His kingdom is bringing God's space and our, our, our earth space back together, right? And he calls us as his followers to go out and to spread his kingdom, to spread God's space into all of the earth is what his call is. And so what we see when Jesus shows up on the scene is he announces the kingdom. He tells us the message of the kingdom. We see that in the Sermon on the Mount and how he said that it's upside down from the ways of our world. We see that he demonstrates what this kingdom looks like as he goes to broken people. We see his authority over the spiritual realm, over the natural world. We see this demonstration of the kingdom. Last week, we looked at the nature of what this kingdom is like, where Jesus tells all these stories, these parables about how the nature of the kingdom isn't this big, huge, grand, amazing thing, but it shows up in small ways like seeds, right? And today, what we want to look at is this cost of following the king. As we said, everything has a cost to it. Everything we do has a cost to it. Whether it's monetary, whether it's time, whether it's energy, everything has a cost to it. So why would following Jesus be any different? And as we look at Jesus as the king, we've got to acknowledge that kings don't make suggestions. Kings don't have helpful input, but kings have a rule, right? And the idea that we can just passively follow this king is a misunderstanding of scripture and it's a misunderstanding of the kingdom of God. And so we're going to read through chapter 16. It's kind of this turning point in the story where he asks his disciples, he asks them who they think that he is. He tells them for the first time what is going to happen to him and declares what he is calling them to and the cost involved. So I just want to read through this and we'll unpack this. You guys can open your Bibles with you. We'll throw it up here on the screen. Matthew 16, we're going to start in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? It's important to know where they're at. Caesarea Philippi is on the edge of this town that was basically had these temples of worship to Greek and Roman gods, to, to Roman rulers. It was the city of worship, right? Because if I'm going to make some statement about the nature of America, if I say it in Doylestown, it doesn't ring the same way as if I stand in the middle of D.C. and say it, right? So Jesus stands on the edge of this town that's all about worship. He looks at his disciples and he said, Who do people say that I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Basically, the disciples are like, A lot of people think you're one of these Old Testament prophet rock stars. They think that you've kind of come back and you're one of these Old Testament prophets. You can almost see like Jesus nodding, kind of hearing their responses. Then he turns and he looks at them. And he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? 
Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter, Peter, the Old Testament would have had all these pictures of this Messiah, the anointed one, this one who is going to come and redeem Israel, take over their captors and set all the wrongs of their, of their people right. And they're like, I believe you are that guy. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. You know, Peter's like, all right. All right, cool, cool. He says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Then he ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. He looks at them and says, who do you think I am? Like, we think you're the dude who's going to take over. The dude that was long awaited, the promised one of God. He's like, you are correct. And I'm going to build my church upon you, Peter. And nothing's going to stop it. And you can see him like, all right, Jesus, let's do it, right? But look at what happened. Verse 21, from that time on, it's kind of a pivot point. Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Two things. First off, it's kind of a spoiler alert, right? Second thing is messiahs don't die. Kings don't die. And the disciples are like, wait, you're going to... This is the first time he's revealing it to his disciples. Peter kind of brings Jesus aside. He's like, whoa, hey man, uh, we got to have a different PR conversation here. He begins to rebuke Jesus saying, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You have in mind the con- not, not in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. He says, get back behind me, Peter, that you become a stumbling block. Then, This is where we want to double click today. We're going to kind of focus on this for our time together. Then Jesus looks at his disciples. After they said he's the Messiah, after he he predicted his death, he looks at them and says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. For what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? There's this whole turning point that happens in this passage. And some of you may be familiar with this interaction that Jesus has. And for some of you, it may be newer. It may be a newer thing. But today, just what I simply want to do is I want to break down these things that Jesus says and just kind of let them sit in our hearts today. Some of this, this is going to be life-altering stuff you've never heard before, but I just want this to sit in our hearts, not in like a guilty way as we, as we explore the cost of following this king, not in some guilty way, but in a way where we can consider what the life of following Jesus entails and we can kind of be reflective in our hearts about the call of the king. So the first thing that Jesus kind of says in this passage is he says to deny yourself. After they declare that he is the Messiah, after he says that he is going to die, he looks at them and he calls them to deny themselves. The Greek word that he would have used was this aporonomai. It's this, this refusal to recognize yourself, almost this refusal to recognize yourself as the one in charge, refuse to recognize yourself as king. It, it is no secret that the, the world that we live in the culture that we're in revolves around the individual. I just watched this documentary uh, last week. It's called The Century of Self. 
And it's all about how this last, this last century was so uh, self-focused. It was interesting. They were talking in this about early in the last century that, you know, there were these great wars. And that during, during these great wars, the economy to produce all these planes and tanks and things for the war, it kind of helped our economy, right? That we had this, this booming economy because of our production for the war and after the war, how we needed to sustain that. And there was a guy named Edward Bernays who he worked for, for uh, during, during the wartime for the war effort. It's kind of this propagandist, right? Different ways for people to buy into the war effort. But after the war was over and they saw that production was so good, they said, hey, we need to keep our production up. How do we do this? And he became almost this marketing guru. But he said, people don't like the word propaganda during peacetime, so we'll change it to public relations. And so he, became, he, he began all these different marketing schemes to get people to purchase things. And there was this line in the documentary said by a guy named Paul Mazur. He worked for the Lehman Brothers, which is a big financial institution. And listen to what he said. This is early in, in the last century. He said, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things even before the old things have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. That's fascinating. And even if we, we're kind of like, that's interesting. We see that all through our culture today. What's fascinating is that Think of how 2,000 years ago, Jesus is calling his disciples. He looked at them and he said the exact opposite. Scott Saul says, The call of Jesus is not to deny your neighbor, take up your comfort, and follow your dreams, right? But the fabric of Jesus' kingdom is 180 degrees the opposite than the self-centered nature of our day that is so ingrained in us. This idea of this desires culture, it shows up in every single way that we see in our world today. Every little pithy cliche that we see on artwork at Target, you know? Follow your dreams, follow your heart, don't let anyone tell you that you can't do what you want to do, you do you. This whole nature of our world, whether it's implicit or explicit, all tells us that you are priority number one. That your desires are the most important thing. But Jesus looks at his disciples. He looks at his disciples and he says, deny yourself if you're going to follow me. I, I want to clarify what, what, that, what that means, right? Because there's almost a sense of denying yourself versus denying yourself. That's why we worded it that way. That scripture, we looked at this even a few weeks ago, it often equates our sinful nature, our flesh, with the self or the old self, right? Our sin nature is kind of ourselves apart from Christ. Galatians 5.16 says, Walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. There's a, a, a couple of ways that a couple pastors said it. I want to I show you. This guy named Warren Wearsby, he says, Denying self is not the same as self-denial. We practice self-denial when for a good purpose we occasionally give up things or activities but we deny self and we surrender ourselves to Christ and determine to obey his will. This once-for-all dedication is followed by a daily dying to self as we take up our cross and follow him. A guy named Tom Constable says, Self-denial, as Jesus taught, does not involve denying oneself things as much as it does denying one's own authority over his life. This is the great challenge. Jesus, Jesus isn't looking at his disciples and being like, stop doing these certain things and ha practice this rhythm of self-denial. It's not necessarily what he's saying. And while these certain habits of self-denial may be helpful to, to train our sinful nature, to train ourself, 
the heart of what Jesus is saying isn't about not eating snacks or something. But he's saying, die to your self-preservation, your self-centeredness, your self-absorption. Die and surrender to the idea that you are the king of your life. It's, it's an issue of authority. And we in our culture, because we're so desired and self-centered, when someone talks about authority, we're like, whoa. We have this aversion to authority, yet when we follow Jesus, we're following a king. We're not following suggestions. We're not following good ideas. But we're following the authority of Christ. Too often as believers, we, we can kind of believe the lie. I don't know if it's come from our culture that we believe the lie that Jesus doesn't want us to do anything uncomfortable or hard. Like we hear this all the time, like, why would God do this to me? Why would I walk through this? And it creates a tension about what we see is clear in Scripture. And what we end up with and what we see all through Christianity today is this watered-down pop culture religion that just simply has Jesus' name associated with it. And our culture knows it when they see it. That's why so many people aren't buying this Christian thing. Because many times our lives don't look anything about the, the way of Jesus or the authority of Christ. I recently was reading uh, this, this article. It was by a guy. This guy is not a believer. And he was commenting on a, a recent kind of high-profile fall of a, of a Christian leader. And this Christian leader was kind of a representative of Christian cool, right? He was just kind of this cool hit person and, and he was kind of commenting about how this fall of this leader was kind of a picture of a lot of the pop culture Christianity at large. And I want to read you this. It's a little bit long. I encourage you to stick with me because I think this is, a, this is challenging to us as believers. This guy, in talking about this fall of this pastor, he says, it seems to represent what I call the, with a twist of Christianity trend. There is a mainstream culture, celebrities, fashion, music, modish political activism, and a message of self-love, but with a twist of Christianity. He says, most people stick with mainstream culture because they can have all those things and premarital sex. We can see the, with a twist of Christianity, trend elsewhere. He said, some leaders are representative of the right-wing, business-oriented evangelicals who offer capitalistic self-enrichment with a twist of Christianity. Then there are progressive Christians who promote the usual left-wing causes with a twist of Christianity. While different in beliefs, such people share patterns of thought. He says the former believe secular individualists mysteriously share God's wishes for what should be done with money. And the latter think that secular progressives mysteriously share God's wishes for what should be done with their bodies. Listen to what he says. This guy's not a Christian. So if Christianity is such an inessential add-on, why become a Christian? I am not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them instead Making, instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much like they want to become more like me. We, we, th this this non-believer is making an observation of Christians who, we, we like Jesus. It's cool. Twisted Christianity, whether it's our politics, our sexual morals, we'll throw a little Jesus on it. And he, this guy, he's calling it out. He's like, you, I don't want to be like that. What it looks like is you really just want to be like me. You want to represent the world, this desires culture. 
which is why Jesus makes it abundantly clear that what he's calling us to is not to stay where we are, but to follow the way of the kingdom, to follow the way of the cross, which is why he says, take up your cross and follow me. This, this phrase has become a cliche, right? That it's my cross to bear. Like that's become a cliche in our culture. And usually when we say that we're talking about a particular hardship or suffering, right? Which would make sense. Like sometimes we're like, I love hiking, but I get allergies. It's just my cross to bear. And that is not what he's talking about. He calls us to bear our cross. And it's not just to deal with kind of general life hardships and sufferings. Though, though that definitely has a place for how we process it with our discipleship to Jesus. A guy named Josh Black says, There are a lot of people who don't believe that the cross is a choice, but something that happens to them. When you hear people say, this is my cross to bear, a lot of times they're talking about their health, spouse, children, circumstance that is a burden to them. These things are legitimate challenges in a Christian's life, but they are not crosses. Circumstances may be painful like a cross. They may be a burden like a cross, but they themselves are not crosses. A cross is something that is to be picked up willingly. A cross is something that that calls us to deny our way of doing things and choose God's way of doing things. It is saying no to our stubborn will in surrendering to God's sovereign will. Tough circumstances provide plenty of opportunities to pick up our cross, but the circumstance itself is not a cross. It's just an opportunity to choose one. I love that, that the idea of a cross is connected to the call that Jesus has on our lives, not just general suffering. What's interesting is in this interaction that Jesus has with his disciples, he tells them how he is going to go and die and rise again. And then he looks at them and he tells them to carry their cross. This is the first time that he reveals that he's going to die. And we have the whole story. We know that Jesus himself is going to go die on a cross. He didn't tell them that yet. We know that Jesus is going to die on a cross. And when he tells them to carry their cross, though they don't know that Jesus is going to die on his cross, they know what a cross is. They would have seen criminals lining the streets, paying for the evil that they've done in a savage Roman way, right? They would have walked to the streets and seen people hanging on these crosses. And what's interesting is that these criminals who broke the law, as they went to their place to be crucified, they would have had to carry their cross as a symbol of the authority that they broke weighing over top of them. And as Jesus looks at his disciples, he says, I'm calling you to deny yourself and to carry your cross. He's telling them that what they are carrying is a sign of Jesus's authority over them. That Jesus is called to bear our cross in our daily life is the decision to die to ourselves and to carry the hardships of life that are directly associated with his way of the kingdom. Not just general suffering, but the suffering that we endure as we follow his way. That we carry our cross. When we forgive the person, even though they didn't ask for it, they didn't expect it, they're not even going to acknowledge it, that we bear that cross and we offer that forgiveness regardless. That I bear my cross when I end that relationship with that person who is not a follower of Christ. That I bear my cross when I remain celibate instead of gratifying my sexual desires regardless of my sexual orientation. That I bear my cross when I give my very valuable and limited time to investing in others, even when it feels like we're making no progress. 
that I carry my cross and I decide that I will not take another sip of alcohol, even though I'm freeing Christ to do so, because I know how it enslaves me and I will only be enslaved to Jesus. And we kind of got to navigate these practical ways in which we bear the cross as we follow Jesus. But for some people throughout Christianity, throughout time and history, and even in our present day, this carrying of the cross is all but literal. That people are literally giving their lives for following Jesus and his kingdom, for following his authority. That Peter, the guy who Jesus is talking to in this interaction, will literally be crucified on a cross upside down. He will literally die on a cross as well. Jesus says to take up our crosses and follow him. That's why Jesus snaps at Peter, because what Peter is doing is stepping in front of Jesus and saying, no, follow me instead. I don't like your way, Jesus. Let's take over. Follow me. But the disciples didn't know yet what we know now, that Jesus carried his cross in our place. That the cross that Jesus bore as he walked the hill to Calvary, was our cross to bear, our evil, our sin, the evil that we, have, that we have put out into the world before God, before our fellow man, before ourselves, that the penalty that we deserve, that Jesus carried in our place, that he carried our cross. It was our cross to bear. It was our death that he took. It was our penalty that he was beaten for. The disciples didn't yet know this, but we know this, that he calls them to bear their cross but only, only because he was going to bear the weight of their penalty, going to carry their true cross. And as we look at this, perhaps the most Christ-like thing that we can do, when we look at the cross of Jesus, he bore it for the sake of us. The most Christ-like thing that we can do is to bear our crosses for the sake of others. Romans 15, 1 through 3 says this, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Hebrews says that it was because the joy set before him that he endured the cross. And that joy, as we've said, was you and I. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What if? Jesus' call for us to bear our crosses is to bear the weight and the burdens of others for their sake. Not just in an individualistic sense, but when we carry our crosses and follow Jesus, we bear the weight of other people. And the opportunity to bear others' burdens and lay our life down just as our king did. Charles Spurgeon, an old famous preacher, says, you have to bear the cross, but not the curse. Your Lord endured both cross and curse. But to you, there's not so much as a drop of divine anger in all that you are suffering. After Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, he says this, this beautiful kingdom upside down phrase. He says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it that we find our life by losing it. It's counterproductive. It's counterintuitive sometimes. That the kingdom looks upside down, doesn't it? We said this the first week, that oftentimes in the kingdom of God, winning looks like losing and losing looks like winning. That we have to let go of this life to truly find our lives. 
that the tighter that we have a death grip on the things of this world, the more that we lose it. It's like, it's like when you try to control your, your teenage children. The more you try to control them, the more you're actually losing them. There's a quick parenting tip for you. That the more that we try to win here on earth, the more likely that we will end up like Michael Jordan. Holding on to the past, holding on to a cigar and a little thing of whiskey, talking trash about all the people who have wronged us. All the situations that we, that we failed at. That if we cling to this life being our only hope, we're just going to be cynical and pessimistic. But when we spend our whole lives, if we spend it securing ourselves in this life and ignore the spiritual realities that separate us from the presence of God in the next life is what he's saying. That we can spend all of our time accruing things in this life and losing our life in the next. We can gain the whole world, is what Jesus is saying, and eternally lose our souls. Which is why it's interesting that in the context of this whole conversation of taking up our cross, just a few chapters earlier, Jesus says this, Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In one hand, Jesus is called to deny yourself Take up your cross. If you lose your life, you'll find it. And on the other hand, a couple chapters earlier, we see him saying, come to me to find your rest. And we think that these things are at odds, but they couldn't be more in sync with one another. That the call Jesus has on us is to deny ourselves and take up our cross. But as we said at the beginning, everything has a cost. We just have to decide if that cost is worth it. Not all costs are necessarily bad. This cost this, this cost of the cross, to deny ourselves and take up the cross. Jesus is calling us into life. He's calling us into rest. He's calling us to follow him in the true way of life, which is surrendering ourselves. We just have to decide if the cost is worth it. My, my wife is, is pregnant with our second uh, kid. Have another little boy. We only have boys in our family. And, and she's got a two-year-old running around. She's she's you know, seven months pregnant with our second boy. And there's a cost, right? She's waddling around. She's uncomfortable. She's going to have to labor this kid, which is the real deal, right? She's going to have to raise this kid with a two-year-old running around. Like, I'll, I'm going to help out. But let's be honest, right? Like, she's the champ. And all this, all this has an inherent cost to it, obviously. But the cost is so worth it, right? It is not a loss. But this cost is an investment into greater life, right? Jesus says he has a yoke. He says, my yoke is easy. He didn't say I don't have a yoke. He's got work for us to do. we got something to carry. But when we get a hold of what it truly is, we find true joy in rest and what he calls us to, that the surrendering of our life here and now, the losing of our life here and now, causes us to truly find it in Christ. Because you know what is exhausting? And you know this to be true. The never-ending obsession with yourself and with this world. That's exhausting. That the target always changes. Joy is always elusive. The grass is always greener. We're always toiling, wondering if what we're doing even matters, makes a difference. And we know that we're truly never satisfied. 
But as followers of Jesus, to follow Jesus and to carry our cross, to, to bear with Jesus, to become like him in his sufferings creates this intimacy with Jesus. We find deeper joy, deeper communion with God, true rest because we're carrying the yoke of what really matters. There is a cost to everything. But when the cost is worth it, it doesn't feel like we lost something, but we gained our souls, is what Jesus is saying. He, he calls us to come and lose our lives, to give everything that we have from the surrender our lives, is what he's calling us to. And it, it seems ridiculous, it seems like a lot to ask, but the truth is that you're already doing it. We're already giving our lives to something. It's not like we haven't decided to give our lives to something and maybe we'll give it to Jesus. You already are. Maybe it's your own human desire. Maybe it's your entertainment. Maybe it's your joy. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's your vacations. Maybe it's your retirement. Maybe it's your girlfriend. Whatever it is, you're giving your life to something. We're just called to give our lives to him and that cost, there's no loss. This, in, this entire conversation as we wrap up this entire conversation, it begins, it begins with Jesus looking at his disciples, looking them in the eye and saying, who do you say that I am? This entire conversation, this, 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 this conversation, if, if you walk away and you're like, all right, I got to carry my cross, deny myself, I'm going to try. Dear Lord, help me to deny myself. And then tomorrow you're going to do a bad job at denying yourself and you get frustrated. That is not the conversation. Like your own will to change is a poor motivation and it lasts maybe 15 minutes. Guilt is a bad motivator. Great results in the short term, bad results in the long term. That this whole conversation is not about try harder, deny yourself more, give yourself up. That's not what it's about, but it's about looking at Jesus saying, who do I truly believe that Jesus is? Who do I really believe that Jesus is? This whole thing, all these conversations can sound crazy. Denying yourself, carrying crosses, especially for the sake of other people who may even be my enemies. It's ridiculous. Unless Jesus is who he says that he is. Dwell on that this morning, this evening, whenever you're watching this. Who do you say that Jesus is? I'd encourage you to write it down on a piece of paper. Sometimes we can go through the motions, we can know the Bible verses, we can, we, can, we can kind of cling to our history. It's like, yeah, Jesus, you know, he did these things and it's good. And... But when was the last time you paused and you spent some time with Jesus? Like, Jesus, remind me of who you truly are. Sometimes we, we, can, we can think of, you know, who, who the, the left side of culture says that Jesus is. Or who the right side of culture says that Jesus is. Or who my favorite radio pastor says that Jesus is. Who my friend thinks Jesus is. And we can kind of assume everybody else's view of Jesus but Jesus, he asked the disciples, who do they say I am? Then he looks at them. He says, who do you say that I am? Because if we just believe that Jesus is an individual, an idea who gives us good advice, helps us, just does some stuff for us, has like some verses that are not. And if we wouldn't say that, if we believe that, then it's not going to be worth the cost. It's not going to be worth following. It's not going to be worth denying ourselves for. Unless we believe that he is the creator, if we believe that he is the, the savior, if we believe that he is good, if we believe that he is just, if we believe that authority is his, right? 
as a, as a follower of Jesus, I'd ask you, what are, what are the crosses that we're refusing to take up? That we're like, Jesus, I, I, I like what you did for me, but I don't want to do it for anybody else. What's the cross that, that you're, not, you're re- refusing to take up? Because I would venture to say by the refusal to take up that cross, you are, you are putting yourself in bondage. That we find freedom and rest and peace when we bear the weight of others just as Jesus did. But when we cling to our own life, when we cling to our own way of doing things, we will lose our lives is what Jesus is saying. Do we trust Jesus that denying ourselves and taking up our cross is truly going to lead to true joy and rest in life? Do we truly believe that? Sometimes we have a hard time believing, like, Jesus, I, I want to believe who you are, but I'm struggling. Help my unbelief. So I don't know, I don't know where, where you're at today. But I would encourage you to be introspective. This call of the cross isn't a call just to try harder. To be a better denying of self person. That's not what he's calling you to do. He's calling to look at Jesus and asking, who do you say that I am? Do you believe that I have your best interest in mind? Do you believe that I have authority of all of all these things? I challenge you as we follow the king, we follow the kingdom to take Jesus at his word as we continue to follow the way of the king. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would help us to see that the cost of following you is not a loss, but it's how we gain our life. That Jesus, as we deny ourselves and take up our crosses for the sake of others, most of all, that we find life. That we become most Christ-like when we deny ourselves and take up our cross. Jesus, we live in such a culture that is so centered on the self, centered on the desires of ourself, that Jesus, I pray that you would help us to kick those things down, to see that these foundations that we can build our our temporary lives upon are rickety, that they shake, that they fall down, that they change, but that we would root our hearts in an unshakable kingdom, in a kingdom that will not be shaken, that will not fade away, that will not be given over to another, but a kingdom that is centered around your authority, your goodness, your rule, your reign, your power, your grace. I pray that you would help us in this. God, as we, as we search our hearts, I pray that we would see you for who you really are. That when, we, when you look at us and you ask, who do you say that I am, that just as the disciples did, that we would see you as Lord, that we would see you as Savior, that we would see you as, as life. We're thankful for the cross. We're thankful, Jesus, that you bore our cross, that you bore the weight of our penalty that we could never bear. And that in light of that, you call us to follow you. It's because of the goodness of Jesus that we pray. Amen.